Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Shahidi, and this is the Evoke Master Speaker Series podcast, where we host open-ended conversations with business leaders and world-class investors who share stories, lessons learned, and market insights. Thank you for joining me on this journey, and please feel free to visit our website at evokeadvisors.com to see videos of these podcasts and to learn more about our firm. Our next guest is a serial tech entrepreneur. Spencer Raskoff is the co-founder of several popular billion-dollar companies, including Zillow, a travel site called Hotwire, and Picasso, which offers second-home co-ownership. Most notably, Picasso recently went from launch to unicorn, reaching a billion-dollar valuation in just five months. Spencer shares his background and vision when he started these companies, as well as his perspective on how technology will continue to impact the real estate markets and other industries. I hope you find the conversation as fascinating as I did. Spencer, thank you for uh, taking the time to share your insights with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for the conversation. Um, Very good. Uh, Spencer is a serial tech entrepreneur. Uh, He co-founded several popular billion-dollar companies, uh, including Zillow, which he served as a CEO for about a decade, uh, Hotwire, uh, which is a travel site that was sold to Expedia for about $700 million a couple of decades ago, and most recently, Picasso, uh, which is focused on second home co-ownership, uh, which is also the, the fastest company to go from launch to unicorn, uh, achieving a billion-dollar valuation in just five months. Uh, pretty remarkable. Uh, Spencer, you've also created a SPAC. Uh, you're a visiting professor at your alma mater, Harvard. Uh, you co-founded .LA that shines a light on the tech scene in Los Angeles. Uh, you've published a couple of books. Uh, you host a couple of podcasts, including one with your 13-year-old son called Dad, I Have a Question. Uh, very, very cool. Um, so today, uh, what we'd like to do is dive into your background to better understand what sparked the interest in technology. Uh, we'll discuss your passion for mentorship, and we'll talk about your perspectives on how technological innovation will continue to impact real estate as well as other industries. Uh, how does that sound? That sounds great. Uh, that's, a, that's a lot to cover. <laughs> of course. Uh, okay. So why don't we start at the beginning? Uh, when and why did you first become interested in technology and how did you develop your knowledge? Um, so uh, I, and I have to go back to my parents um, and, and my dad's career story, which is actually far more interesting than my career story. Um, my dad went to Wharton undergrad and had a very conventional you know, business background, uh, graduated in 1967. He was a partner at an accounting firm, at a big eight accounting firm, I think the youngest partner they'd ever had in the early 70s. And uh, in the restroom at his office, he met, um, he was like washing his hands. And I think it was 1971, he's washing his hands. And there's a British guy next to him uh, washing his hands. And he's all angry. I'm so mad at your, this firm. This firm is terrible, blah, blah, blah. My dad says, you know, what's the problem? I'm a partner here. How can I help? And he says, yeah, I'm the business manager. I'm the manager of the Rolling Stones. I'm Prince Rupert Lowenstein. And your fancy, fancy New York accounting firm won't take on the Rolling Stones as a client. And my dad's like, yeah, that's because they're you know, drug addicts and they throw TVs out of windows and, and whatnot. Like, I'm not surprised to hear that. But, you know, what, what's the problem? You know, why are you here? And he says, well, you know, I wanted, I wanted Herman and Cranston, which is now part of KPMG, to audit the 1972 Stones European tour. And my dad said, well, that sounds kind of interesting. I'll do that. And so he took a leave of absence from the partnership at his firm 
and uh, moved to Europe and was basically the controller and audit partner on a rock tour in 1972. And he started uh, a career in music and business management from that point. I was born in 75. So I grew up with him as the business manager and tour producer for the Rolling Stones, U2, David Bowie, Paul Simon, Pink Floyd, 38 Special, uh, Leonard Skinner, um, uh, Elvis Presley, and then the estate of Elvis Presley after Elvis died, et cetera. Um, and so to answer your question, Alex, like I, I saw he had, he was on this sort of straight and narrow path of, you know, let's call it like Wall Streety type, you know, but accounting. And then his career took a total left turn to do something entrepreneurial. And that was very um, impactful to me growing up watching that and watching the, the cool, interesting career uh, and successful career that he had um, by following, um, following an entrepreneurial passion. So I went to Harvard undergrad and started investment banking at Goldman Sachs because that's what you do when you don't know what to do. Um, if you go to a good college um, and you know you graduate with that, like not actually with any particular skill uh, or training, um, you know you follow on-campus recruiting to investment banking. And I was pretty unhappy. You know, I did my two years in New York uh, in banking, and it wasn't for me. And I moved to San Francisco, did a year in private equity. It also wasn't for me. And it was at that point that I got the entrepreneurial bug and left TPG, the private equity firm I was at, just to do my first startup. Um, and um, so it was a, a bit of a winding path uh, as well. But I'm very glad that um, you know that I left um, investment banking for entrepreneurship and went through a lot of startups. And we can talk about whichever of them you want in whatever order you want. But you know that's that's how I got onto that entrepreneurial path. Okay. And then what about? Uh, what drew you to technology? But what is it specific about that industry that um, attracted it, you? I think it's the pace. Um, you know, the, the the pace of change and innovation um, in technology that's really differentiated from from most other industries. Um, uh, you know, like uh, I don't know. As an example, I, I think of you know when we started Zillow in two thousand five, um, we we built a really great business, and then in I feel like it was around 2009, 2010. I remember sitting at my desk watching Steve Jobs demo at the Worldwide Developer Conference at WWDC, um, demo the iPhone and allude to a coming app store. And it's kind of weird to think about this, but remember the first version of the iPhone that had no speaker, had no, you know, it really was just an iPod with, you know, with a phone. It had, I don't even think it had a web browser, but if it had apps on it, it was just the Apple apps. And it wasn't for a year that they added an app store. And so then like three months later, when it became clear that they were doing an app store, we pivoted the whole company towards mobile and you know, drop.com from the name. It was no longer Zillow.com, it was just Zillow. We changed the whole dev team um, to focus on, on apps and mobile web. I mean, as and, and like, so to answer your question about like why technology, like those types of pivots that are required in technology are what keeps it interesting, what keeps it fresh, what keeps it challenging. And most other industries don't have that type of wholesale change and reinvention required every couple of years in order to stay in business. Okay. And, and what is, is there something specific about real estate that, that, uh, you know, made you focus on, on that space? Um, initially? I mean, yes, yeah, nothing personal. Like, I mean, my mom was actually a real estate agent when I was a kid and then a teacher. So, I mean, I, I grew up interested in real estate. Like we would go to open houses for fun. And like, that was like a family activity we would do on the weekends. Cause my parents were just like, you know, like many people today, real estate obsessed, but 
but that was kind of early for, for people to be that real estate obsessed. But the reason we started Zillow wasn't because of my, any personal connection I had to real estate. It was um, because when we left Expedia in 2005, there were four of us that left together. We sat in a conference room for six months trying to think of a business idea. And, um, uh, and three of us were shopping for homes at that time. And uh, we were shocked that in 2005, you know, 10 years after the internet started, the, the home shopping on the web was re still really terrible. And, uh, you know, we would have one browser open with the county website, King County in Seattle, where we were based, had a pretty good website, actually, with really good data. But most counties didn't have that type of information. And then we'd open an MLS um, service where a real estate agent friend would give us a password. And we're like, well, the combination of these two things is really cool. Like, how come the consumer doesn't have access to this? How do we democratize access to this information? How do we turn on the lights in the dark room and, and shine a light on real estate information by combining public, public data, data with, um, with secret industry databases? And so um, the pattern recognition, there's kind of pattern recognition plus this spirit of democratization. The pattern, pattern recognition came from the online travel experience where 10 years earlier when, or five years earlier when I was starting Hotwire and five or 10 years earlier when my, my co-founders at Zillow were starting Expedia, we did the same thing. We took an industry database, which was the GDS, which was only accessible to real to uh, travel agents. <laughs> I confuse real estate agents, travel agents. It was only accessible to travel agents and we flipped it around. So remember before Expedia, before Hotwire, before online travel, like you'd be on the phone with a travel agent and you'd hear him or her like clickety clack typing on a keyboard and, and you, you know, all you want to do is jump through the phone and be like, show me what you're looking at. I know you're using a computer. I can hear you're using a computer that must be connected to something. Like, why can't I have that? You know, step aside intermediary, let me have direct access to it. And that's really what the online travel pioneers did is they gave direct access to consumers to that industry database. And that's what we did again with, with Zillow when we took an industry database and, and, and county records and made it accessible to consumers. Yeah, I mean, it sounds obvious now, but you know, go back, you know, fifteen to twenty years. Um, it's you have to have the foresight to see that this is the way it should be because there's an inefficiency there, yeah. and 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 I guess that's what that, that's how that's what led you down these paths where you identify an inefficiency. Uh, it should be available to everybody. It's for like the common person, and you try to capture those. Yeah, I mean, a good a good way to think about startup ideation or brain, you know, brainstorming for an idea is try to, try to um, like, like market map um, almost in a, you know, like a, like a X, Y axis, um, total addressable market size relative to net promoter score. Or in other words, like what's a really big market that people really hate, uh, you know, so healthcare is an obvious one, like gazillions of dollars spent, but everybody generally hates their healthcare experience. Right. Um, and uh, real estate is another one, like, Hundred and uh, 1.6 trillion of residential real estate transactions, 80 billion of commissions, 20 billion of advertising, and everybody hates buying and selling their house because it's a pain in the neck. Um, and um, you know, where, where you find huge market and really low customer satisfaction is where they're usually good startup ideas, right? And and if there's a good technology solution to bridge that gap, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, so maybe give us a, a snippet of your first startup. 
Uh, sure. you, you've you've had a lot of them, but <laughs> it's, it's it's I think it's always helpful to go to the first one. Yeah. So let's let's start went. at the beginning. So so uh, 1999, I was at TPG, private equity firm, which was a big private equity firm at the time, but you know it's become a really really big private equity firm. Um, and TPG got its start in the airline industry. They bought. Continental Airlines out of bankruptcy and turned it around. They bought America West Airlines out of bankruptcy and turned it around. And by the time I got there, they had sold some of their Continental stake to Northwest. So they actually controlled three US airlines and they controlled Ryanair, which is the largest carrier in Europe. It's sort of the Southwest Airlines of Europe. So LBO shop controls four airlines, 1999, the height of the first internet boom. And you know what happened at the time, as you may remember, um, is the private equity firms had VC jealousy. Like all of a sudden, you know, for, for in the 80s and 90s, the king, kings of the universe were, you know, uh, Rubenstein and Henry Kravis and David Bonderman and Steve Schwartzman and, you know, the, these private equity titans, Saul Steinberg, um, you know, Mike Milken, et cetera. And then all of a sudden the mid 90s came along and it was Kleiner Perkins and Excel and, you know, Sequoia and Benchmark and these upstarts from Sand Hill Road in San Francisco or, or you know, in the Silicon Valley um, that were getting all the attention, all the media, all, all the front, all the covers of Fortune and Forbes. And most importantly, all the assets from asset allocators, you know, like, you know, like you and the other people on this call um, that were, were voting as LPs, you know, to move money into, into venture. And so the private equity firms were really scrambling to try to figure out how to respond. And they did um, three things. Two were really dumb and one was really smart. Um, the first really dumb thing they did was a lot of them, including TPG, raised um, side funds, you know, usually just of LP money. So at TPG, I think we raised a $200 million fund just from the partners, no, no outside LPs, to kind of be the, the, the last money, you know, the dumb money, it turns out in retrospect, in the Series D, E or F. Of, of a lot of other venture deals. And so we put out a, a lot of um, late stage growth investments that tanked it when the market crashed in 2000. Um, the second dumb thing that they did, like a couple other private equity firms, was they created an incubator. I think the TPG one was in partnership with like Bain or BCG or McKinsey or whoever. And there were a bunch of these incubators that were in vogue in, in the late 90s. And that also fizzled and, and became nothing. But the third thing they did that worked was they looked at their portfolio and they tried to figure out how do they leverage their existing portfolio into the internet. And so the, to make a long story short, we went to those three airlines and then also American United and, and, um, and one or two other airlines um, and um, created an industry consortium company that would be a discount travel website. So TPG went to six airlines and said, hey, let's start a discount travel website. It'll compete with Priceline, which was aligned with Delta Airlines. The airlines loved the idea. We got equity exclusivity from the airlines, so they could only own stock in us and one discount travel company, not a competitor. Um, we came up with a really clever way to, to allocate the equity where um, for each of the first four or five years of the company's existence, we gave out a certain amount of stock based on how many tickets each airline sold through Hotwire. So we created an incentive for them to sell more and lower their prices through Hotwire in order to gain more equity share. Um, and um, and then TPG and the airlines put in the founding 75 million of capital. Um, so it wasn't like you know two kids in a garage kind of startup. This was a startup hatched within a you know a, a, a very big private equity firm. But the 27 year old junior partner and and the 23 year old junior associate and that's me who put the whole deal together at TPG with David Bonderman who became the chairman of, of Hotwire. Carl and I left to start to run the company. And so we left with these founding contracts, 
you know, him and me and, uh, and not much else. And we went and started recruiting people and, and building the company. We didn't have a name. It was called, um, it was called CIMO, C-I-M-O, which is Opaque Model Internet Company, which is what we called it in the founding documents. It's OMIC backwards. So it was called this Project CIMO. And then I, because we couldn't hire anybody to join Project CIMO because that was just terrible. We renamed it Project Purple Demon, which sounded really cool. Um, remember, we're in San Francisco in 1999 and we're trying to recruit engineers um, in the middle of the first internet bubble. Um, and so Purple Demon was uh, was a cool place to work until we renamed it Hotwire. Um, that was 99. Company was going well. Things are great. Two years in, everything is crushing it and the company's doing terrific. And then 9-11 happens. And when 9-11 happened, um, you know, obviously it was a disaster for the world and for the country. And, and, um, and it was also a disaster for us as an online travel company. <clears throat> I mean, we had tens of thousands of customers stranded around the country, around the world, actually. Um, we had sold tickets to the hijackers, not the September 11th flights, but the September 10th flight from Bangor, Maine to Boston Logan, I think it was, that put the Logan uh, cell in place. Um, we'd, I didn't ever disclose that until just a couple, a year or two ago. Um, I felt enough time had finally passed, but that was something that only, you know, only the most senior executives knew because the FBI came and told us and uh, and wanted to want us to turn over whatever information we had about it. So that created this really terrible sense of guilt among the executive team because we had this connection to it. And then I had been, I gave a speech at the Millennium Hilton on September uh, 9th. Um, and the Millennium Hilton was crushed by the Twin Towers. And then I flew home on September 10th, the flight from Newark to San Francisco, which, uh, which ended up, um, I think that was the one that ended up in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. So I was saved by a day uh, being on a flight on September 10th, the same flight number. Um, so it was a mess. Um, it was pretty, a very difficult time for the company. Um, we had to lay off a quarter of the company um, to, to, to avoid bankruptcy. And we did a down round, which wiped out a lot of the equity. And it was, you know, really, really tough time at the company. And the good news, the story does have a happy ending because by two years later, 2003, we were on, on the right track again, um, after a lot of hard work and, um, and we're getting ready to think about going public. And then Expedia came and made an offer that was super attractive and we decided to take that. And so we sold the company to Expedia. I moved up to Seattle and started work at Expedia. Yeah, it's not a typical first startup story. Right? <laughs> no, no, yeah, I learned I mean, a lot in a short period of time. Yeah, the, the smart move is instead of starting it with a bunch of your buddies in the garage, you actually surround yourself with really smart people who knew what they were doing. Um, and that led to good results, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, I'm so fortunate. I mean, there's a, I learned so much from that experience, including from David Bonderman, who's one of my mentors. And then Jeff Jordan was on our board. He was the head of PayPal at the time. And now he's a you know, leading venture capitalist, Andrews and Horowitz. And um, John Scully was on our board from Apple and Pepsi and Don Kendall Jr. And I mean, we had an incredible board. And um, you know, I, I learned a lot. The other thing I learned is that uh, down rounds will really get you, you know, and I don't think I understood that as a 23-year-old founder, but you know, down round that basically wipes out the common equity of the company, makes it so that when you sell the company for $685 million, which sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, really only the VCs, you know, only the preferred equity, you know, does, does well. Um, and so that was also, a, you know, an important lesson. Um, but, um, but, you know, by 27, I was on to my next, or actually not my next startup, but I was at Expedia and, um, was the president or not the president, it was the, uh, the head of the hotel business, I think, um, was my title. And, um, you know, Expedia had, it was a 
more than a 10 year old company, maybe a 15 year old company by that point, they had spun out of Microsoft and was partially owned by ISC, by Barry Diller's holding company. And it had really lost its way. Um, I mean, they were our acquirer. So I got there, you know, I didn't choose to work there. I just sort of showed up for work and um, it was not an innovative place anymore. It had become um, tired and, and, and old and, and not innovative. It was a pretty unpleasant, you know, short stint. Um, and um, after about a year there, I was unhappy and started brainstorming business ideas and, and left with the founding team from Expedia that also was ready for a change. And so that's where we found ourselves in a conference room shopping for houses and thinking of startup ideas. Um, um, I will share with you quick, briefly the, the other, the, the kind of the other finalist idea that we had at the time uh, after six months of, you know, four people staring at each other in a conference room. Um, the, the two, and, and it's actually a good, a good, a good lesson about like where ideas usually come from, which it's usually from some problem in your life. Um, and as I already said, one of the problems in our life was real estate shopping. The other was after working for 15 years, we had, um, all these hard drives, like literal physical hard drives with fo family photos and data and files and whatever from different companies that we'd worked at. And when we were finally going through them all, because it was the first time that any of us had stopped working since, you know, since our, our careers began. And um, we realized that it was very difficult to move files from one machine to another. Now, there was no cloud. Remember, this is 2005. The term cloud hadn't been invented yet. There was no AWS. There was no Azure. There was no Dropbox or Box or anything. Um, and so you're like email, you're using like flash drives to move, the, you know, and you're connecting with Ethernet cables, like one hard drive to another. And... Um, uh, and we we're like, this is crazy. There's got to be a better way. And we basically had the business plan for Dropbox was what we came up with. We're like, you know, this thing will connect to the internet and there'll be storage there and people will be able to move files from a, a machine up to the internet and then to, you know, to another machine, whatever. And we decided not to pursue that in favor of, of the Zillow idea because we felt that um, the internet giants would eventually make storage free, that, that they would want you in their ecosystem um, and so it'll be a race to the bottom on storage and compute power. Now we were sort of right. I mean, we definitely didn't predict that it would be Amazon and creating AWS and or or Microsoft or Google. None of them, you know, were in the space. Far from it. We thought it would be like Yahoo or eBay or or you know Excite or Lycos or you know AOL or something. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, that's why we decided not to do the the storage idea, which basically became Dropbox. Um, and, um, Dropbox got big enough, fast enough that they kind of, you know, threaded the needle and they, they, they didn't, they're kind of at the enterprise level, but not at like the AWS enterprise level. So they, they, they made it, but you know, only, only by the skin of their teeth is, is kind of how I would, you know, they're lucky that AWS hasn't gone downstream to, you know, to, to eat Dropbox or boxes. Yeah. That's interesting. Anyway. Yeah. Let's, why don't we talk about this notion of being a serial entrepreneur? Uh, obviously, starting a business and making it successful is really difficult to do. You've done it multiple times. Uh, so two questions. One is, one is, how have you been able to repeat that process that we know is difficult to do? And, and the second is, what motivates you to keep, doing, keep starting over? Because you, know, you, have a, you have a couple thousand employees, you have all these resources at your disposal, and then you walk away from that and go and start over where you have just a few employees, if any, and you're starting from scratch. So what, what motivates you to do that? And then two, how have you been able to succeed, you know, successfully repeat that process? So, so mo you know, most, 
people have a strong preference between the zero to one stage when you're just getting an idea going or the scaling stage kind of 50 to 500 employees or like the big scale, like 500 to you know 50,000 employees and publicly traded and whatever. I actually, um, I was surprised how much I liked running Zillow through the, that second and third stage. Like I, I, I liked running Zillow as a public company. I thought um, it was fun and interesting and challenging. I liked working with public shareholders. Um, I liked the kind of hand-to-hand combat of, of, of being publicly traded. Um, and I liked having a bigger stack at the table. You know, the nice thing about a startup is you're super small and nimble. But the nice thing about being a big company is if you have an idea, an initiative that, you know, you want to pursue, you can, you know, you got a lot of chips. You can, I mean, at Zillow, we'd be like, hey, let's let's devote 20 people to see what we can come up with on 3D, you know, 3D imagery of houses. And let's Let's throw 10 people at, you know, figuring out if we should launch Canada and let's throw 20 people at, you know, that whatever. Um, and um, you can't do that as a small company. So I, I, I like all those different stages. Um, the, the thing that has motivated, you know, every, every time I've left a job, it has been because my wife has observed that I'm kind of unhappy at that job. Like she's the one that told me to leave Goldman Sachs when I was 22 she told me to leave TPG to start Hotwire. She told me to leave, you know, Expedia to start Zillow. She told me to leave Zillow to sort of retire and then start a bunch of new stuff. Um, and um, and so I, I definitely think it's important in one's career to have somebody in your life, whether it's a spouse, a friend, parent, loved one, whoever, that um, can hold up a mirror to you and tell you things about yourself that maybe you, you know, you didn't even see. Um, yeah, sometimes you're too close to it to see totally. the obvious. Totally, totally. And there's a lot of inertia, you know, especially if you're like, you're focused on that thing. It's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm going to work today. I'm going to drive, run through that wall. And you're like, and, and, you know, got to get to the next quarter and then the next year and budget planning and the review cycle and the next comp cycle and the whatever. It's like, you're just, you're just going through the motions. Um, and so sometimes you need somebody to like throw cold water in your face and tell you like, Hey, wait, like you're not happy. Can't you see that? Um, <laughs> so, so that's, I think that's been an, a very important partnership, um, you know, for 28 years, I think it's been, um, um, uh, but then, but then I guess the other part of your question was like, you know, in doing it over again, you know, like the most important thing is the people. Like I, I was in a board meeting yesterday, for example, um, on, um, and, and on a, a company that was not a company I started, just a company I'm on the board of. And we spent like two or three hours on people topics on like, you know, this person needs to be managed out or this person is being up-leveled or thinking about promoting this, you know, all this discussion with the CEO about, about the org chart. And like, you know, after that discussion, I said to the group, I'm like, you know, it's amazing. Like the more tech centric a company is, the more the people matter. And I, and that's kind of surprising. I think most people on the outside be like, Oh, that's a tech company. Like surely the, the robots run everything. The machines run everything, but actually it's, it's the exact opposite in my experience. Like the more techie a company is, the more important the people are. I don't know why that is, but that's been my experience. Uh, maybe because it's, you, you know, you're not manufacturing anything. Like all you're manufacturing is creativity. And so the the people are what's really important. But if you're manufacturing, you know, pencils or whatever, it's like the people maybe don't matter as much because it's just, you know. It's, it's also easier to see when there's a problem, I guess. Yeah, I, that's probably right. <laughs> so anyway, so, so, so I have been very fortunate, maybe not fortunate. I've been very intentional and fortunate about surrounding myself with people that I like, that I learn from, that challenge me, that um, you know, make me a better, better at what I do. When we started Picasso, 
Uh, I started it with someone that I worked really closely, closely with at Zillow for years. And we went out and we hired, you know, the first 20 or so people were like, it was like fantasy football, like draft picking of like, okay, I want this person who had this role at Zillow. I want this person who had this role at Hotwire. I want this person who had this role at, you know, one of his startups. And we were able to create that founding team of the first 10 or 20 people, like dream team style, just like 15 years earlier at Zillow, we did the same thing when we were starting Zillow. We were like, okay, I want this person to work with me at Expedia, this person worked with me at Hotwire, this person worked with me at Goldman Sachs, like, you know, cherry picking all these great people. And that makes all the difference. I mean, that's like what, that's everything. And how do you, how do you get them? Is it just telling a story and it inspires them to join you? Is it um, paying a lot or how it's does not that paying work? A lot. It's not paying a lot. It's really not, um, at least in my experience. I mean, there are obviously, there, there are some people and industries that are more financially motivated than others, you know, in my experience and generally in tech, I'd say um, people are, people want to be part of something bigger than themselves. They want, you know, if you're going to sit at a computer all day and type code or whatever, or answer customer service inquiries, like you want to feel like you're part of a mission, part of changing the way people shop for a home, changing the way people own second homes, you know, changing the way people plan and plan and book vacations, like something big and bold and badass. Um, and um, so it's 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 painting a big vision and mission that people can feel connected to. It's giving them a lot of autonomy and um, giving people career pathing and independence and um, responsibility um, and giving them good managers. You know, in my experience, people don't quit companies, they quit managers. And um you know, if, I mean, the, the research is pretty clear. If people have a, a couple of close friends at work and they feel that they, they feel a personal connection to their manager who really invests in them and their career and mentors them and coaches them and teaches them and makes them better. That even if the company's not doing well, even if the compensation isn't great, like they'll stay and they'll stay motivated. Um, now that's hard in a remote environment. It's very difficult for people to form new friendships at work over video conferencing. It's very, very difficult for them to form a relationship with their manager. So I, I, you know, that puts the onus on the executive team to like doubly invest, triply invest in, in people and culture and ways to drive employee engagement because it doesn't, it, it's very difficult. It really has to be manufactured um, a little bit more um, artificially. It's like, I don't know, it's like growing, um, you know, flowers in a, in a, um, uh, what's it called in a, a flower uh, in the greenhouse in a greenhouse versus like out in nature. It's like, you know, you have to like really carefully control the, the, you know, everything because it's like, it just requires extra, extra TLC. Yep. That makes sense. Well, wh- why don't we shift gears to uh, your passion for mentorship? You know, obviously you teach it at Harvard, you publish books, uh, you host podcasts. Uh, you also launch your own SPAC supernova and I imagine this is largely because of your interest in mentorship. So maybe talk to us about what, what drives you in that regard. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. I mean, I am at the stage of my career, and I'm going to sound really old here because I sort of am, which is I'm, I'm not the right, I, I shouldn't be playing anymore on the field. Like, you know, playing professional sports, running a, a company, especially an early stage company is a bit of a young person's game because it requires massive energy, focus, um, devotion, um, you know, and, and I don't think I am the best person in the world for that anymore. I'm at the stage of my career where I'm coaching just, and just like a coach of a sport. I mean, that's what I'm doing. So, so 
I do that with different companies at different stages and I get paid in different ways. So 75 and Sunny Ventures is my family office. I do about 40 or 50 early stage investments a year there where I'm writing $50,000 to $250,000 checks into startups. I've got 100 active companies in my portfolio. The My website, 75 and Sunny, has you know lists most of the portfolio companies there. And there I'm getting paid, if you will, for my mentorship by my venture investing, by my angel investing. And so I talk with all those founders pretty frequently, some of them more frequently than some of them as often as once a week. Um, and I'm coaching those, those companies. Then all the way at the other end of the spectrum, my three SPACs, um, you know, I took these SPACs public and then they're merging with private companies and they're creating big publicly held companies. One is has already de-SPAC'd 3 billion company called OfferPad. Another is in the process about a billion and a half dollar company called Rigetti. And the third one is still looking. So there I'm getting paid by my sponsor promote in the SPAC and I'm coaching and mentoring those management teams as they transition from private to public. And then in the middle, I'm coaching these companies that I'm starting. So Picasso, I started with my co-founder um, and you know we can talk more about that in a second. And then .LA, I started with a co-founder and then Recon Food, I started with my daughter and co-founder, that's a food social network. Um, and, um, and I have a couple others that I'm incubating and haven't announced yet. So there I'm, you know, the co-founder and starting these companies and I'm coaching and mentoring. So I'm like a coach that's, that has like a soccer field over here and a football field over here and a tennis match over here and a, you know, baseball game over here. And I'm kind of coaching all these different players and also coaches of themselves on the different you know, teams um, rather than playing on the field. And that's, a, you know, a really fun way to spend this stage of my career, including teaching in school as you mentioned, where I'm, I'm doing this uh, at Harvard as well. And then I'm doing it through my podcast. Too. Right. And the odds of injury goes down dramatically when <laughs> that is you're true. not on the field. <laughs> well, that, so, so it's funny you say that. that I, I once asked um, a, a VC friend of mine who used to be an operator, um, you know, used to be a CEO. And I asked, you know, what's the difference between venture investing and, and operating? Like, do you miss, do you miss being CEO? And he's like, you know how, at the Super Bowl, like when, you know, they win on the field, like the players are just going completely nuts. And, ah! and then they like flash to the owner's box and there's some like rich old white guy with like cufflinks and a suit and tie. And he's like awkwardly high-fiving like his nephew who's like 30 years young or whatever. Like that's the venture capitalist, you know, who, like where the highs are not as high, but the lows are not as low. And then the players like on the field and like, that's everything you need to know about the difference. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, so you mentioned SPAC. Um, I, I'm not sure if everybody on the call knows what a SPAC is. Maybe if you could yeah. just tell us in plain English yeah, what a SPAC is and maybe kind of maybe the way you do it with your son on, you know, dad, I have a question podcast. Sure. So, yeah. So, so my podcast, with my son, now we've had 50 something thousand listens. Um, and we have an episode called what is a SPAC where I literally explain to my, you know, my, my little kid, what a SPAC is. So, um, a SPAC is a shell company essentially. So I, I, you take a sponsor as it's known, which would be me, takes public a shell company. Um, it trades on the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ or whatever. And um, we sell shares in that IPO. People that buy shares in that IPO, you know, give us cash. That cash sits in trust. And then that shell company has no employees, really, two or three employees, basically. And it exists for one reason and one reason only, which is to go out and find a private company to merge with. And when that private company merges into this public shell company, the SPAC ceases to exist. The SPAC changes its name to the name of the private company. And poof, by virtue of that merger, that private company has gone public. Um, the reason, you know, you have to think about all the different parties of like why this is appealing. So this is appealing to the private company that goes public through the merger 
because typically they can go public faster than if they go public in a regular way. Second of all, um, they get the sponsorship. So they get sort of the, the patina, the seal of approval from the sponsor who advises them and coaches them, as we've been discussing. Um, and then perhaps one of the more significant benefits is they can issue projections. So in a regular IPO, companies are not allowed to issue financial projections because they don't have what's called safe harbor, um, meaning that if they don't hit those projections, they can get sued. So they tend not to issue projections. But in a merger, companies are allowed to issue projections with safe harbor um, as long as they're prepared you know, adequately and intelligently. So this is why you see a lot of these crazy hockey stick, high growth companies going public via SPAC merger, like my second one, Supernova 2, is merging with Rigetti Computing, which is a super a quantum supercomputing company with basically no revenue today. They're trying to build a, a series of quantum computers that if and when they work, those quantum computers will produce many hundreds of millions and hopefully billions of dollars of revenue. So we have projections for Rigetti that are a total hockey stick. They couldn't go public regular way, but they're a great SPAC candidate. Um, so that's why the private companies like it. The reason the sponsors like it is we end up owning a small piece of the merged company. So I get paid by becoming a shareholder in, in these private companies after the merger. And then the public shareholders generally like it because they're buying the shares in the IPO. And if they don't like the deal that comes to market, they can always get their money back. And so for them, it's sort of a risk-free way to potentially buy into an IPO. But if they don't like the merger, then they just they, they vote against it and they get their money back. Um, so that's what SPACs are. Um, they have been around for a long time, actually, 15, 20 years, but they were kind of in the shadows. They entered the main, you know, the mainstream a couple of years, you know, two-ish years ago. DraftKings was one that went public that way, Virgin uh, Galactic, um, Open Door, um, and there have been a couple other very high-profile ones, SoFi, um, and and um it's you know, it's it's becoming a little bit more standard lately. Yeah, and just like IPOs are good and bad specs. Right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. There, you know, it's it's um, there are good SPACs and there are bad SPACs. There are good there are good SPAC sponsors that have done bad deals, um, you know, bad mergers. There are bad SPAC sponsors that have done done good mergers, um, and um, it's just another way to go public. Is this is the long just like there are you know good deals that that Goldman Sachs underwrites the IPO of, and there are bad deals that Goldman Sachs underwrites the IPOs of. Um, and there are good deals that, you know, no name investment bank underwrites the IPO of, et cetera. So it's just another method of going public. Okay. That's helpful. Thank you. Um, so why don't we shift to real estate? Um, you know, most of our, most of our listeners and clients own real estate. Uh, it's a very popular, uh, asset class topic of discussions typically. Uh, so let's go back to 2005 when you, when you were sitting in the, in the conference room for six months, coming up with the idea uh, you, you touched on this a little bit, but why don't we go a little deeper? What was your vision when you launched uh, Zillow and what developments surprised you along the way? Yeah. So the vision, um, hey, this might surprise you, but the vision was um, not that fully formed. It was, it didn't get much more sophisticated than the following. Um, uh, there's a lot of money spent on real estate. Surely if we can somehow find a way to get a lot of traffic, um, then we'll find a way to monetize one way or another. So let's build basically a real estate business that's a media company that sells advertising. We'll figure out exactly what that advertising is later, but let's just focus on aggregating traffic. How are we going to get traffic? Well, most real estate websites focus on answering the question, what's for sale? 
we think that's kind of a commoditized question to answer because there are, even when we were starting in 2005, there were already a lot of real estate sites that answered what's for sale. We asked a different question, which is what's your house worth? And, you know, I'll give you a very like kind of Seattle perspective on this. Remember, you know, I grew up here in, in New York and then here in LA, but then I found myself in Seattle for 15 years between Expedia and Zillow. In Seattle, um, our office building where we were brainstorming this idea um, looked out at Elliott Bay at, in the Puget Sound area. Um, Elliott Bay is the, you know, the water that's, that's downtown Seattle sits right on top of, and it's beautiful. And um, a couple times, um, uh, a couple, for a couple months a year, you can actually see whales breaching, orca whales on their way from Mexico up to Alaska in Elliott Bay. So it's kind of crazy. Think about that for a second. You're sitting at your office desk and you look out your window and there are whales there. And this is Seattle. It's not like Alaska or Antarctica. And so the, the point of this story is that um, uh, we looked at whales breaching um, coming out of the water and then going back under. And when you go whale watching, which I'm sure you do all the time, um, you know, what happens is when a whale breaches, everybody oohs and ahs. They take pictures like, oh, look at that whale. It's amazing. And then the whale goes underwater for like half an hour. And you're like, what's happening? How's it going? Like where, you know, there's nothing to do until the whales come, come out again. That was us with listings. When a home comes on the market for sale, Everybody looks at it and take pictures about it, talks about it. Oh, did you see the house around the corner is for sale? Blah, 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 right. And then uh, the house goes off the market and, and like stuff is still happening. The whale is still underwater. There's lots of stuff happening when the home is off market, but uh, there was no transparency about it. And so one thing that's happening is that house is changing in value. Um, you know, the home value is changing during the seven or 10 years that the house is off market. So we decided to try to shine a light, not just on the homes that are for sale, but on every home and give people kind of superpowers where you could like have a God's eye view from above and see a price on every rooftop and monetization would come later. So that was the, that was the original business plan. Um, it's not particularly full, you know, well-formed in, in, in retrospect, but um, it, you know, for the first two or three years, we had no listings of homes for sale. All we had was this estimate, bed, bath, square footage, county data, this kind of voyeuristic lens into every home in America but nothing about what was for sale. And we became the third or fourth most visited real estate site without listings. And then 2008 happened. And by the way, there's a trend here of like, usually about two years after I started a company, that, you know, the, the, the catastrophe the, occurs Catastrophe <laughs> in my industry, you know, almost brings down the world, um, you know, 2001 travel and now 2008 with financial crisis. So again, my industry is like afflicted by this global calamity, the global financial crisis. And um, the good news for us was interest in real estate went way up because everyone's home value was suddenly declining and they were freaking out. The other good news was we went to the real estate industry at that time and said, hey, you know, you can't seem to sell your houses. How about you put them on our website for free? And so brokerages and MLSs and real estate agents who were, had previously viewed Zillow very um, you know, suspiciously suddenly embraced us because we had traffic and it was free to put their listings on our site. It was very similar to 2001 after, after 9-11, where the hotel companies and airlines that were kind of ambivalent about distribution through online travel sites, they really embraced online travel sites after 9-11 because they needed the distribution. And so this is, a, this is an important theme, which is that a lot of great startups get built during these down, type, down cycles, downturns. It's harder to raise capital, but if you already have the capital, 
you can actually build a much better business because all the cards get thrown up in the air in the industry. Everything that, you know, companies that if you're an enterprise SaaS business and you sell software, like, you know, in, in times of change, companies that might've taken two years to decide whether or not to buy your software, you know, maybe they'll do it in two weeks. Like everything is up for grabs during these, these periods of, of, um, of, of upheaval. Um, and so that was the first, you know, the, um, the, that was 2008, went public in 2011. We did 16 or 17 acquisitions after we went public. We acquired multiple brands, Street Easy in New York, Hot Pads for Rentals, Trulia, which was our, our main rival, uh, realestate.com. And so we became a multi-brand media site selling ads to real estate agents. We got up to about a billion of revenue from real estate agents. Um, and that took us to about five years ago when everything was great and we were, you know, we were doing well. And then we decided to pivot the whole company in favor of iBuying and kind of bet the company on this brand new business model, which is in the news today because, <laughs> you know, I retired three years ago and left the company in my, in my uh, co-founder's hands. Um, and I left the board and have been doing other things, some of which compete with Zillow, um, even though I'm still a shareholder. And, um, you know, yesterday Zillow announced its retreat away from the iBuying business and, and a return to the roots of just selling ads rather than buying and selling houses. So it's a, it's a very, uh, you, you're catching me at a very uh, strange moment. <laughs> so just, just a quick uh, summary of what iBuying is for those who don't know. Yeah, iBuying is when the company uh, buys your house and then renovates it and resells it quickly. So to the seller, it's massively appealing. Instead of re refurbishing your own house, putting a yard sign up, hiring a real estate agent, paying 6% and not knowing when the house is gonna sell and keeping your house show ready and taking the kids out of the house and the dogs out of the house every time there's a showing. Instead, you know, Zillow or OfferPad or Open Door walks, you know, makes you an offer over the phone and then walks the house and just says, okay, your house is worth $300,000 and I'm going to charge you a 4% fee or an 8% fee or whatever. What closing date do you want? And that's it. You just turn over the keys and actually OfferPad literally moves you as well. Um, they pay for your moving company. Um, and so it's really appealing to the seller. These companies make money by charging that service fee and then refurbishing the house and then reselling it, hopefully for more than they paid for it. In Zillow's case, they overbought. They didn't detect that the market was slowing a little bit. And so they bought too much they didn't renovate it quickly enough and they were left with much too much inventory. And then they decided to, to fold. Yeah. That's a tough business. It, it is yeah. difficult business. I mean, yeah. OfferPad and open door are doing it very successfully. And so it surprises me greatly that Zillow is, uh, is packing it in after making such a enormous 2000 employee bet and hundreds of millions of capital and, and really, you know, bet the brand on it. And they are abandoning it, um, which is which is just very very surprising. Um, but you know, and the stock is stock is tanking. You know, down twenty five percent today on the news. So it's uh, it's it's um, anyway, not a great day to be a Zillow shareholder. It's good news for OfferPad and Open Door, um, both of whom now have a wide open lane to um, to to really create this category because it is a much better way to sell your home. And, that's the irony of the situation is that Zillow helped create the category and help prove that sellers love this product um, that, you know, it's, it's like selling your car to CarMax, you know, instead of like fixing all the dents in your car and then listing it on eBay yourself and having people come to your house and, you know, buy it and figure out how to sell a car to an individual. Like you just drive it into CarMax or even into a dealership 
and you just turn it over. And yeah, of course, you're leaving a couple percent on the table by doing it that way. But that's the service fee that that company is making. Isn't that better for you? Um, and so I'm totally confident that that's the way that many, many, many homes are going to sell in the future. Um, and, um, you know, I think that Offerpad and Opendoor are going to do really well here. So does that mean that traditional brokers should be worried that their jobs will be displaced? So on 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 these types of deals, um, they their commissions will be a lot lower. So right now, I buying is 0.5% of all real estate transactions in the US. I think it will get to at least 10%. Um, so you know, and 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 that's nationwide. So that means that in the in the buy box, as they say, in like in certain, you know, three hundred thousand dollar home in suburban Atlanta. 50% of them are going to be sold to these institutional buyers. Uh, be, you know, the, why so high? Because in Brentwood, you know, none of them are going to be sold to institutional buyers because the prices are too high um, for them to put that much capital at risk and, and, and deal with the, you know, a, a hold the house for six months during the refurbishment instead of 60 days or six days in the case of a, of a lower end house in, in suburban Atlanta. Um, so, um, so should agents be worried? It was your question, Alex. Um, the answer is, um, I would be worried if I if I was a you know median median realtor in the median market in uh, you know a two three hundred thousand dollar price point. Yeah, I think they're in trouble. A high end agent on the west side of LA is going to be just fine, um, and um, you know the, so there'll be a bifurcation there. Okay, uh, why don't we shift gears to second home co ownership, which sure. is what which is what Picasso does? Maybe talk to us first about what that is. Yeah why it's booming in popularity and what's so special about it. Yeah. So Picasso is an amazing company, an amazing concept. Frankly, it's, it's for much further along after its first year in business than anything I've ever been involved in. You know, we'll see how this story ends. If it ends up being a, you know, $50, $100 billion company or not, that very much remains to be seen, but it's off to a faster start than anything, you know, than Zillow or Hotwire or anything I've been involved in. Um, Um, Picasso allows people to buy a portion of a second home. And so the insight here is that owning a second home is an amazing thing. My co-founder and I have been lucky enough to to be able to do that. And we're trying to democratize that. Second home ownership changes lives and it shouldn't just be accessible to the 1%. It should be accessible to the 10% or the 50% of the population. And that's achievable. That's possible. It's possible through co-ownership because uh, second homes are an incredibly underutilized asset. So Picasso lets you buy as little as an eighth of a home in Malibu and Laguna and Aspen and Tahoe and Santa Barbara and, you know, wherever in Miami, we're launching in Spain this week. Um, and, um, and you, you do the scheduling of visiting your home through the Picasso app. You don't know who the other co-owners are. It doesn't matter. It still feels like your house. Um, and we do the property management and it's totally turnkey. And so it allows you to own a second home, um, it, with with no fuss, no muss, and you know you're not throwing money away on an Airbnb rental. Instead, it's your home, and you're forming memories and connections to that individual property. And it's um, you know a, a really exciting idea that is taking off. That, that's awesome. Uh, what, what what other areas do you think uh, are ripe for being taken over by technology? You know, either in real estate or even other industries. You have this digitalization of the economy that's been supercharged in many ways by COVID. Um, Maybe talk to us about just your perspectives in that regard. Yeah. So, I mean, the the two, 
I'd say there the two of the trends that have kind of informed my career have been um, this democratization, taking something that's only accessible to a small portion of people and making it accessible to everybody, right? So real estate information was accessible to agents and appraisers. Now it's available to everyone. Um, second home ownership was available to rich folks. Now it's more widely available because of Picasso and and, and growing every day. Um, you know, travel discounts were available to a small portion of people that were in the know that became readily available. So I'm I have made a career of trying to democratize things that were inaccessible. The other big theme uh, that I've focused on is is almost the other the opposite, which is the verticalization of things. So. Um, like if you think of social media for a second, social media is horizontal, right? Meaning that it's, it, you know, you use Instagram or Facebook. Uh, it's like, it covers all topics, but social media, I believe is, is verticalizing now where you've got uh, LinkedIn for your career social network, all trails for hiking, um, uh, recon food for cooking, for people that are interested in, in food and restaurants and cooking, um, um, uh, Strava for running, Peloton for cycling. I mean, these are vertical social networks in each of these categories. Doctors have a bunch. There's one for oil field workers, which is has raised tons of venture capital. I forget what that's called. The people that work on oil rigs, you know, are having their own social network, believe it or not. So, and then Dot LA is a media news site that covers LA tech. Um, and so it's it's like the re- the benefit of this unbundling of verticalization is these niche services can build more bespoke products, you know, Dot LA can have an event just for people interested in LA tech. Recon Food can build a, a feature just about uh, menus and, and recipes that Instagram is never gonna build a recipe feature because it's a horizontal social network. And Strava can build a feature around showing your running route. Instagram is never gonna do that because it's horizontal. So the, the verticalization is, is another big theme of, of my investing. Um, but the two big themes that that are in vogue right now that that I, I have exposure to, but you know, I haven't started companies in, are Web three and NFTs. And so, you know, Web three is um, this concept that um, the creators, the, those that contribute to the the community of a of a site or a, a service that they um, contribute to, they should get the value. So so think like Web one was. You go to a website and you buy something. You go to Amazon, you buy something. Okay. Web 2.0 was user-generated content. So I go to Yelp or TripAdvisor and I'm benefiting from other stuff that, or Wikipedia, other stuff that other people have written. That was Web 2.0. Web 3 says, you know, how come I'm always the one telling, writing stuff on TripAdvisor, but TripAdvisor makes all the money. Like if I'm going to contribute to TripAdvisor, I want to make the money. And so what these Web 3 companies are doing is they're giving tokens to those that contribute to the network and those tokens are redeemable for something and they also trade. And so that's why you frequently hear about tokenization and web three kind of in the same breath and cryptocurrency, because usually those, these tokens are also a cryptocurrency. So, so this is a huge trend. And you know, if you're anyone listening is hearing about this for the first time, you're going to hear about it a lot more and you probably have been hearing about it, but you probably haven't, you know, haven't focused on it. So web three and tokenization is like all the rage in tech. And then NFTs are kind of a derivative of that. NFTs are also all the rage. Because an NFT is just a concept of like owning a, dig- a single digital asset that um, can be backed by something physical or not by back- be backed by something physical. Um, and the reason that NFTs are so in the rage is because of this other big trend, which is the metaverse, which is more in the news lately because Facebook just renamed the company Meta. And the whole point of the metaverse is that we're going to live in some virtual world like this one. I mean, people are like, oh, that's crazy, Spencer. But like, what do you think this is, right? There are people 
like you and I, I don't think we've ever met in person, but we're experiencing each other virtually. And, you know, you've got something behind you. It's like a diploma or something that's, that adorns your wall. There's no reason why there shouldn't be a digital thing behind you. Maybe it's a NFT of a concert ticket, you know, the, uh, your first con- or it's an NFT of an autograph of a soccer player that you like. And you want me to see that in your background. And so you might go buy the digital version of that and it becomes part of your digital life, whether it's in Zoom or it's in Roblox or Fortnite or Meta or whatever Facebook becomes or Oculus or who knows where. And so anyway, that's how NFTs tie into all this stuff. It's just like digital bling for your virtual life there. That's actually a good, that's a good catchphrase. NFTs are digital bling for your virtual life. Um, <laughs> but um, anyway, so those are like the big trends in tech right now. And, um, and, and the good news for those of you in LA, I know a lot of our listeners here are in LA, almost all this stuff is like, is mostly happening here. Like LA, this is the most exciting time to be in tech in LA because LA tech is the intersection of media, entertainment, pop culture, fashion, taste-making, um, you know, e-commerce, like uh, social, like all of it is happening here because this is the entertainment capital and the cultural capital of the world. And so most of the cool startups doing cool stuff in the space are based here, which is, which is amazing. I mean, it's like the reason Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley is because that's where they were manufactured silicon chips in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. That's actually, you know, now most of that manufacturer is in Taiwan. And so there's really no reason why the Bay Area should be anything but the studios are here, the entertainment industry, the music industry is here, the, the athletes are here, like all of that's in LA. And I, I don't see that moving. So there's a good shot that LA tech can be, can be the thing for the next 50 years, the way the Bay Area was for the prior 30 years. I'm betting that's- on that. It's fascinating. Just the the pace of change is remarkable. And for many people, it's hard to keep up, um, especially, you know, those that are not in their 20s. Um, So we appreciate you uh, explaining it in in easy to understand terms. Uh, It's really fascinating. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Alex. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Master Speaker Series podcast produced by Evoke Advisors. You may email us with questions or recommended guest speakers at info at evokeadvisors.com. Please subscribe to this podcast to ensure you don't miss future episodes. And don't forget to forward today's conversation to others you think would enjoy listening. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Evoke Advisors, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits. And listeners are reminded that securities trading, commodity trading, and alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. (music) 